Good evening and welcome. Well, here we are at the end of uh, 27 weeks and the end of the Bible. And uh, we'll say goodbye to the end of the Bible until we start all over again. But anyway, it's been a great season. I just want to let you know before we get into tonight, I have enjoyed doing Wednesday nights probably more than anything I've enjoyed doing in years. This has been a great run for me. And I apologize that it hasn't been for you. No, but, <laughs> but it's been fun. And I just really appreciate your being here week after week. But tonight we're going to look at the last part of the book of Revelation, uh, beginning in chapter 7. And it, it, this may seem to be a monumental task. But it's in some ways you can simplify it. And uh, hopefully I've been able to do that so that you'll be able to follow along. Let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll dig into this. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity for us to, to read it, to study it, to understand it, to see its place and its role in our lives and to allow it to be transformational in how we see the world around us and change the way in which we deal with the situations that we all confront every day. God, we pray for grace as we look at this last portion of the New Testament, Lord, and just open our eyes and our ears. And I know that everyone here has a desire to be able to say, I, I really do kind of get the book of Revelation, which would put them probably in a tenth of one percent of humanity. But God, just uh, make it clear and simple, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, this last week, is this is probably the most neglected book of the Bible, and I, I said that, and then as I was doing some reading this week, I realized, I discovered that that wasn't an exaggeration or just simply my anecdotal impression. That is actually a fact, that most pastors admit that they stay away from the book because they get so confused by it. So if you've ever read it and said, I'm kind of confused, uh, well, you're, you're, in, you're not in rare... You're not in rare company. Uh, but the problem is it doesn't have to be that confusing. What makes it confusing is when you pick the wrong way to try to understand it. And just a little bit of review as we uh, start up again tonight. Uh, as we mentioned, it was written by the Apostle John sometime around 96 A.D., and I said it's divided into three divisions, which is an outline of the book that the book itself provides in its own words. In fact, it talks first of all in chapter 1 about the past. He refers to it, the things you have seen, and John reports what he sees or what he had seen in the vision. Uh, chapters 2 through 5, he moves on to the present where he talks about the things which are, and that's the account of the seven churches. And also we talked in chapters 4 and 5 of him being caught up into the throne room of heaven. And then he, in chapter 6, begins to speak of the future all the way through chapter 22 where he speaks of things which will take place. And that's really the major focus, obvious, of the book because in my interpretive approach to this particular book, I view the book as being literal except in places where it's obviously using figurative or symbolic language. And in those places, it almost always provides us with an explanation of what the symbol or the image that we're seeing means. So it's really not that complicated when, we, when he talks about the great red dragon. He very clearly goes on to tell us it's Satan. And so we don't have to spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. Uh, and so most of those things are pretty clear. Not that many are confusing. 
But secondly, not only do I see it as being literal, I see it as being futuristic. Some people say it's allegorical. Some people say, well, it's, it's historical. But it's really something that's futuristic. It's talking about the things that are to come, particularly in the end of human history, a period that we often refer to as the tribulation. Um, as I said, the book is divided into a series of sevens. You had the seven churches. There were seven angels or messengers to the seven churches. Some people say they have the seven pastors of those churches, although I don't particularly see that. But more importantly, we see the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, the seven bowls. And there's actually seven final visions or points of revelation at the close of the book as well. But what really stands out and I think is really the key dividers of the book are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls which are filled with the wrath of God's judgment upon the earth. And what these judgments are, we would define them as simply being cataclysmic. You know what that word means. It means it's so devastating that nothing much survives except rubble. In fact, Jesus predicted this very thing in Matthew 24 and verses 21 and 22. He said, for then there will be great distress. The word distress in the NIV, most, a lot of modern translations put it uh, in, in the King James as well, there will be great tribulation, which is really actually more accurate. It's the word thlipsis in Greek, and it means tribulation, times of extreme trouble and suffering. It'll be a time of great distress or tribulation, unequaled, from the beginning of time until now, and never to be equaled again. And he adds on to it, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. For the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So Jesus is describing this period of great tribulation that's going to be so devastating that were it not for God bringing it to a termination, it would eventually lead to the extinction of human life upon the earth. And as we get into it, or if you've read the book of Revelation and paid close attention to the judgments, you can see that that isn't an exaggeration according to John's revelation. The question is, when we look at the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, and the seven uh, bowls of God's judgment, are they being presented in a cyclical fashion, or are they pre being presented in a chronological fashion? Now, you may be saying, I don't even understand the question. Please explain. Okay, I will. Cyclical, some people believe that the seven trumpets are really kind of encompass the seven, or the seven seals encompass the seven trumpets and encompass the seven uh, wraths, so that basically they're all kind of rolling out together. And John's basically doing a thing that they often did in Hebrew literature, which is called reiteration, where you express the same thing over and over again in different formats. Uh, some people interpret it that way, and, and there's a reason for that, because there seems to be some similarities, but there are also some differences. So for the sake of our time tonight, I want you to understand that I interpret it chronologically. I think the seven seals lead to the seven trumpets, which lead to the seven uh, final judgments, the great bull wrath judgments, within a fairly uh, well-defined time frame that covers that seven years. And so well, I have actually have a graph that will kind of help you understand that as we go through it in our explanation. Uh, often I like to answer, who is really the, the story about? Well, the central figure obviously is Jesus. In fact, he refers to it in verse 1 as the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of, of the future by Jesus himself. And uh, 
We find that he is the central figure in the first five chapters. He's also the central figure in the last from chapter 19 through 22. It's Jesus is featured. But what about from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 18, through chapter 18? And this may surprise you, but Jesus is not the central figure of that. The Antichrist or the beast who comes out of the abyss, the abuso in Greek, which means basically the bottomless pit, which is a figurative way of describing uh, basically he's coming from hell. He's, he's, he's demonically powered and inspired. It it's really features all the things that revolve around the time in which he steps into the picture in a big way, which is what the time of the tribulation tends to figure. And there are three things that we're told uh, beginning way back in the Old Testament prophet of Daniel that he is going to bring into the world through his time. The first thing is he's going to be, bring one world religion. In fact, Daniel said that in his Revelation in chapter 7, he read, there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. And he goes on to say, he will speak against the Most High. In other words, he'll speak blasphemy or critically and faulting of the Most High God. He will oppress the saints and try to change set times and laws. Now, this phrase set times and laws, in other words, he will adjust right and wrong. He will change what is good and evil, what is true and false. He will lead to a blurring. He will call dark light and he will call light darkness. And so you have to understand that philosophically this, the Antichrist is going to attempt to get people to love evil and to hate good uh, because that's the context of who he is. In chapter 9 he goes on to speak more about him and says he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, which is a phrase for seven years. The many that he's going to form the covenant with is particularly the Jewish nation, uh, Israel, the, the Jewish people. And then he says, in the middle of the seven, at the three and a half year point, right at the very midst of the tribulation, he will put to an end sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, kind of a long statement, but real simply, what he tells us, first of all, is the tribulation is going to be divided into two periods, each three and a half years long. That the Antichrist is going to come into power during the first three and a half years, and during this time, there is a third temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, we look at the pictures, see the Dome of the Rock on the Al-Aqsa Mosque on top of the Temple Mount where the temple used to stand in the days of Solomon, the days of Jesus. It's going to be rebuilt, and there's a lot of discussion about what, how exactly that could happen. We won't get into those details right now, but the simple fact is there's a third temple, and before they can begin to initiate sacrifice and worship, he will usurp it, and he will put his image into the temple and declare himself as God. In fact, that's what uh, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said, the man of lawlessness, the word phrase lawlessness doesn't mean that he drives over the speed limit. <laughs> what it means is he rejects the law of God. He rejects the governance of God. He's, he's willful and rebellious against God. And he says, the man of lawlessness is revealed uh, and he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So that the Antichrist, literally the beast, literally declares himself to be God on earth and commands the world to worship him. 
In order to do that, he establishes or is able to establish one world government, which may precede his religious outpouring. But in chapter 13 of Revelation, it says the dragon, speaking of Satan, gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. What is his power? Well, we know that Satan is very powerful. What is his throne? He literally rules over the earth right now. Jesus has not taken the throne of the earth back in his power. He's purchased it through his death, but he's waiting to the end to take the earth back. So he gives the authority to govern over the earth to the Antichrist, and it says the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. So he's going to be a superstar. We think of the Antichrist, the beast coming out wearing, you know, you know basically grotesque and, and horrifying, but he's just going to be the opposite. He's going to be winsome and charming and handsome and personable, and uh, he's going to have it all down. I mean, he's going to be the perfect uh, epitomization of humanity, the, in the minds of many, the ultimate evolutionary sp uh, specimen of our species, the perfect man who presents himself as being God. Now, the idea of one world ruler is not something that is new. I'm, I'm convinced from what I see in Scripture and in history that Satan has been attempting to do this very thing since the, the Adam and Eve fell in the garden. So that when we read in Genesis about Nimrod and the Tower of Babel and all these other things, if we talk even in modern history of people like Hitler and Joseph Stalin and others who have tried to conquer the world and control it, I believe that that's all been Satan using these individuals in an effort to accomplish his establishment of his power and authority over the world. And, and, because, and many people have mistakenly thought that these men were the Antichrist if for no other reasons their ungodliness and the devastation and destruction that they brought upon the earth. That you, you keep in, sometimes we, we grapple with it, but just during World War II we estimate that around 60 million people perished under Stalin in the Soviet Union, there was over 30 million people who died under his rule. So these are men of devastation beyond our ability to really comprehend. So when we, when we think about these things, we need to realize that the idea of having one world government has been on the agenda of Satan from the very beginning because it's the only way he can control all of humanity and bring them into a worship relationship with him. Which so we have we're going to have one world religion. He's going to bring one world government, and finally, he's, we know he's going to bring one world economy. Uh, chapter thirteen. Most people are familiar with the mark of the beast, but he says he also forced everyone. This isn't something you choose. Forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark which is the name of the beast and or the number of his name. Uh, lots of speculation for millennia about what exactly that looks like. Uh, it's interesting because today we're in a place where technologically this is very simple. In fact, there are people right now who are living every day with inserted chips in their right hand. And they actually open the doors to their cars, their houses, they turn on their computers, uh, they turn on the lights, they do all sorts of things because they have this RFID chip that they use. They even use their phone to charge things. They can just simply go like that over the phone and they can do their purchases. They don't have to mess with the things you have in the store. Interesting stuff, but we'll get into that when we get into the end times. Uh, um, at the end of the year, we'll talk more about how those things are being employed. So fascinating videos out there showing you how you can have it done. 
It's a, in case you're interested, I don't know. Anyway, but where is all of this going to transpire? Where we have to keep in mind that in chapter 3, verse 10, this is not a regional problem. <laughs> in fact, he says that in the hour of temptation that will come upon all of the world. So the entire world, the entire globe, all of humanity and all the plants and everything on the earth are going to be involved in this final moment. But the focal point is going to be Jerusalem. In fact, he makes this statement in, in, in chapter 13, verse 8. It says, speaking of the two witnesses, we'll refer to them later on, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figured to be called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well, we know where Jesus was crucified. It was Jerusalem. And so when we talk about interpreting biblical or end times prophecy, it's important to understand that Jerusalem is always ground zero for the fulfillment of prophecy. And so that is, is certainly the case here in, in the book of Revelation. It appears that Satan or the beast actually puts up his world empire, his capital is going to be Jerusalem, which interestingly, as most people don't realize, is that in 1947, 1948, the United Nations actually declared Jerusalem as a international city, a city that belongs to, has no uh, a certain ownership. And even today, it's certainly a divided city, but it's the place where the, uh, the only person, one person who has recognition to run the entire city of Jerusalem is actually the Vatican and the Pope. Uh, but essentially, it's, it's uh, an international city belonging to all the nations of the earth. Uh, the Israel's, Israelites just didn't get the memo. But... Um, Again, what it implies is that not only Jerusalem is the central point, but there's going to be a new temple built upon the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So when is this going to happen? And that's always the, the pressing question people have. When is this going to take place? And it's important to realize that Jesus, you know, remember Jesus, he said something in Matthew 24. He says, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So I always try to remind people, because it seems like uh, a lot of us pastors sometimes get kind of caught up so much in the signs of the times that we, we just can't resist the temptation to throw our ideas out there and to try to guess. And it's almost like if we can, can uh, uh, identify something, we can hurry up and make it happen faster. Um, but the bottom line is no one knows the hour. Uh, I would simply say that I don't know of anything that would re restrain the rapture of the church, that it could happen any moment, any time, but the tribulation is not going to happen until the lawless one is revealed. Um, but nonetheless, Jesus did say in Matthew 16, he said that we can know how to discern the signs of the times that we should be able to be able to look at what the Bible says about the end times and do a comparison and draw some reasonable conclusions. And as I've said many times, that I believe that there's no time in human history where the fulfillment of end times prophecy as given in Daniel and Revelation and other places uh, is, is, is more likely than it is today. There's nothing, in fact, all the vehicles, the mechanisms, all the necessities are already in play and that's why I think it's really just a matter for, the, for God in His will to determine when things are going to begin. Lastly, before we actually get into the book, what is the question is, what is the message of the book? And this may not seem pressing to you or important, but it is, because it's written first and foremost, I believe, to encourage believers. It's not written to scare us to death. 
It's not written to terrify us or to make us afraid or make us, you know, dig bomb shelters in the forest and surround it with concertina wire. You know, that's not what it's all about. It's not run and hide message. It's basically telling the believers, especially in the face of persecution, that justice will prevail, that God will judge unrighteousness. Uh, Peter made that statement in 2 Peter 3, 7 when he said that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Now, one of the sad things, as people have neglected the book of Revelation, they end up neglecting one of the most important messages. God is going to judge the earth and he's going to judge mankind upon the earth and he's going to judge the sins of men. So uh, if you don't teach this book, it's easy to kind of skip over that message, but it is a very important message. There is a terminal point in human history that God refers to as the end, you know, or Porky Pig saying, that's all, folks. I mean, there's, a, there's an end of the story, you know, it comes to its conclusion, and there's going to be consequences to people's response to the message of the gospel. So we need to keep that always clear in our focus. Uh, along with that, he's not only saying he's going to judge the unrighteous, but he's going to redeem and reward the righteous. Judge the unrighteous and redeem and reward the righteous. So earlier, we talked about last week, about encouraging them to continue in their faith and endure hardships as good soldiers of Jesus Christ because God is not unfaithful, Paul said, to remember your works and your labors of love. God remembers that. He keeps perfect accounting of your life. And, and uh, fortunately, he doesn't keep a perfect accounting of your sins because he actually says in, uh, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, that he will remember your sins no more. Uh, that's a memory loss I am so thankful for, right? <laughs> but the whole point is that he doesn't forget your labor of love. Those things that you've done for Christ's sake are eternally sealed and there will be reward that will be given to you. Now, if you're going to press me to say, okay, what exactly does that reward look like? Um, for $29.95, if you buy my, my holy healing cloth, I have no idea what the reward looks like. You know, I mean, I, I really don't. I mean, I just realized that I can't comprehend the glory of what heaven's going to be like. I got to believe that what's under the tree is even better. So I'm just really kind of excited, you know, about what that's going to be. But to know that when we struggle and we have to make sacrifices and we go through hardships, and we humble ourselves, and we get humbled when we don't want to humble ourselves, that God doesn't allow any of that to pass through our lives without rewarding us in eternity for our endurance, the steadfastness of our life. And that's something to be said. You know that oftentimes we, we really honor those who excel. We don't seem to recognize oftentimes how amazing it is for people to endure. My wife and I are working on right now to figure out how we can get down to California to my in-laws in, in July, the end of July sometime, because they're going to be celebrating their 70th wedding anniversary. Yeah. 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 Amen, huh? 70. I mean, it just blows me away. And, you know, my wife says, we've we got to do whatever we can. We've got to honor them. <laughs> because I don't know anybody. I've never known anybody's lasted that long. I mean, you know, most people just get tired of each other and want to die long sooner than that. So it's like, it's an amazing thing. But sometimes we just don't really recognize how amazing it is when people stay in the battle. 
Some of you have been believers for decades. I mean, it's an amazing thing that you have continued in the faith and you'd be the first to tell other people around you, boy, there were times when I wanted to turn in my club card. I just was tired and weary. But God was faithful to encourage you and you stayed in there. You endured hardship, as Paul said, as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you weren't always the star player on the team. Sometimes you woofed the ball and struck out, had to sit in the dugout. Yeah, I mean, that's part of life. But you stayed in the game. And, and God says, I, won't, I don't forget that. I will remember that for all of eternity. And, and just wants us to be encouraged in that. The, the second thing he wants to do is re- to really tell us what the full plan of God's redemption for humanity is. Not just simply before the tribulation, but even during the tribulation we find people coming to Jesus. And we talk, he talks about the redemption of the Jewish people when Paul says in Romans 11, in the last days all Israel will be saved. In part, that's covered here in this particular book. It's also, we know that there are Gentiles who come to Christ during this period. There are a lot of martyrs. It talks about the 144,000 who were redeemed and others. So we have to understand that God saves and even the millennium, that thousand year reign of Christ, is designed to give people yet one more opportunity Those who survive without receiving the mark of the beast and without receiving Jesus and get through the tribulation and people are going to say, who are those people? I don't know. But the problem is that there are people apparently who survive it because the earth is populated and even those people are given an opportunity yet again through the millennial reign of Christ to receive Christ and to be saved and inherit eternal life. So it, it really kind of think, really communicates how pressing it is when, when Paul said to Timothy that God wants all men to be saved. Uh, that's why I struggle with doctor, people that teach that God is you know, going through the room picking who's going to go to heaven and who's not going to go to heaven. The reality is God wants everyone to be saved. And he says, Peter also added in 2 Peter 3, he said, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. That God is delaying judgment as long as possible so that as many people can have the opportunity to be saved. There's one last thing. It's, it's written for encouragement. It's written to outline the full plan of God's redemption. But thirdly, it's written just to let us know that God's in control. When God tells you the end of the story, He isn't hoping that's how it ends. <laughs> He's telling you, this is how the story ends. I'm in control. History is not something that's happening, and he's watching as a spectator. He is history, as someone put me you know, very cleverly. It's his story. So God is writing his story. He's already written it. He's already got a publish, publisher, and it's gone international. And it's going to come to pass exactly as he said it would happen. So... Having said all that, let's talk about a timeline. People like timelines. Well, there's three parts to this I want to first. And first of all, I'd say we have what we call pre-tribulation events, things that aren't going to be talked about in the book of Revelation that are going to take place before the book of Revelation, the great tribulation begins to take place. And there are really two things in Scripture that are spoken of. One is the rapture of the church, and the other one is the battle of Gog and Magog. So these two events, in my opinion, precede uh, the events that are outlined in the book of Revelation. Uh, Battle of Gog and Magog is covered in details in chapters 38 and 39. I refer to it as the death of Islam, and, uh, but I don't have time to go into that study. But if you're really interested, you can go online. I do have messages. I have messages on everything. But uh, 
figured I, years ago, I said, how many sermons have I preached? I came up to around 10,000. So there's, there's a lot of stuff there, so you can find it there. Look for Ezekiel 38, and you'll have an end times message there as well. But, but uh, what we're dealing with here tonight is the seven years of the Great Tribulation. If we look at that, it really kind of plays out this way graphically. You have the seven years of the Tribulation covered from chapter 6 through 19. You have the seven seals which take place in the first half of the first half of the tribulation. You have the seven trumpets, covered in chapters 8 and 9, are the second half of the first half of the tribulation period. And then you have a series of events that happen right in the middle of the tribulation where we talk about the seven signs in particular. And then finally you have the seven bowls of God's wrath, which are the final three and a half years of the tribulation, and that's often referred to as the great tribulation, because the first half of the tribulation is horrific. The last half is beyond description. I mean, I don't think that, the, that there's any way that you can really give a, a clear sense of the horrific nature of the judgment that's going to fall upon the earth. And what's really tragic is that in the midst of this, the response of humanity is that they curse God for the plagues. They don't, there's never a reflective moment saying, maybe we're responsible. <laughs> maybe we did this to ourselves. And rather, it's a, an increasing hardness of heart towards God, especially those who are followers and worshipers of the Antichrist. There are, thirdly, there are the post-tribulation events, which are also covered. And they basically involve the, uh, the second coming of Christ, which is talked about in chapter 19. It's presented in a way uh, unique to the New Testament, and uh, really quite wonderfully. It uh, followed in chapter 20 by the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So when Christ comes and sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah the prophet, he will set up a thousand years of reign upon the earth. And that will be a, a tremendous time. In fact, Isaiah covers a great deal of this. In the last 20 chapters of Isaiah, deal a lot with the millennial reign of Christ and what the world's like. The lion will lay down with the lamb and a child will play over the hole of an adder, which is one of the most poisonous stakes in the world. Things like that. It's just talking about this, the idyllic restoration of the earth to the beauty which it once was. So you have the earth being ecologically destroyed through the tribulation during the millennium. All of that is restored to the Edenic perfection that it had before sin came and tainted it. Only with one difference. There is not, there still is sin on the earth, but Jesus reigns from Jerusalem over the earth. And of course, at the end of that millennial period, two things happen. The first thing is that Satan is released. He is bound in the abuso, the bottomless pit, the abyss for this period of time, and he's released, and he goes out to deceive the nations once again. And the indication, it's not clearly stated, but the indication is he's pretty successful at it, which is really discouraging. Uh, but that fails. He is, he is judged and those who follow after him, and then comes the great white throne judgment. Now, the great white throne judgment is not one that you want to go to. It's called the second death. The first death is what we experience when we die physically and we go to be with the Lord. But this is eternal death. This is where death and Hades, or hell itself, Hades being, or hell being the holding place of the dead, are actually thrown into a third location called the lake of fire. 
And that is a condition of unending eternal torment. And people saying, well, you know, there's some people say, well, those people will just be annihilated and they'll be no more. The problem with that is, is we're talking about we're talking about a timeless eternity. You see, what you are when you go into eternity is what you are because there's no time. We sometimes see time as the enemy, but I like time because it gives me a chance to get it right tomorrow. You know, time is this thing that may be killing me and making me old at the same time, but also I have a chance. It gives me the opportunity. Men can come to Christ because of time. Because today is the day of salvation, and if they don't get it today, then tomorrow becomes the day, because tomorrow becomes today, and today is the day of salvation. But when you die, you enter into eternity where there's timelessness, and what you are is what you are, because there's no change. That makes sense? If it didn't, talk to the person next to you. Uh, but anyway, that, there's the great white throat judgment, and the books are opened, and people are judged based upon their works. So there are two kinds of judgment. There's the first judgment of the church and the believers. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and all they do is just look up our name, and we get in. <laughs> there's no inventory of, of behavior. There's no list. He's not checking it twice to see whether we've been naughty or nice. We, he remembers our sins no more, and we are saved, and we come into the eternity of God. All he's looking for is his name written in the book of life. But when these people come into eternity, people who have died since the beginning of time uh, are brought up from, from death, and they stand before the great white throne of God, and they are judged based upon their works. Nobody wants to be judged on their works. Believe me, nobody does because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the great white throne judgment is a scary place for those who don't know Jesus Christ. So basically that's the timeline. That's the way things flow out. Let's take a look at the text itself and try to see how this uh, unfolds. In chapter 6, he begins with the seven seals, and I would summarize the seven seals as being a season of war, famine, and pestilence, so that uh, it's a time of tremendous destruction. And it's interesting, it begins when it says a rider on a white horse appears, and that he is given a crown, in other words, he comes to rule, and, he goes, and he's coming out to conquer and to, and to engage in conquest. Many people, myself included, believe that this is actually the Antichrist, his entrance in the world scene, particularly because of the crown. He's given the power to rule over the earth. And so the first thing that's going to initiate that, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, the lawless one will be revealed. How do we know that he's lawless? Because he rejects the word of God. That's all. He rejects the truth of God. He rejects the word of God. So that if there's ever a world ruler who re rejects the word of God, that's a hint. He's not who he says he is. And he's coming to do what? To conquer. His goal is not to save the world or to heal humanity and teach us all how to sing together, we are the world. His goal is to conquer the world that he might control it. And he's going to conquer it through war. In fact, it says the next horse comes out. It's a fiery red horse. And it says he takes peace from the earth and makes every man slay each other. And this is fascinating because Paul said in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5 that men would be saying peace and safety. His message is going to be peace and safety. His actions are going to be destruction. He's going to wage war against the world. In fact, Daniel said he will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. 
So he literally is going to create military conflict upon the face of the earth, which may be the cause of the rest of the judgments under the seven seals, because the third horse, a black horse, brings famine upon the earth. The pale horse follows it. It says a fourth of the earth dies. And, you know, you have to understand the food chain in the world is, is really so fragile that if it is broken, and it can be broken very easily, uh, death comes very quickly. In fact, it was interesting. If the electronic grid, we just lost the power of electricity in, in America today. <clears throat> Within one year, 90% of Americans would die. You know, if we had no electricity, if just suddenly the whole electronic grid went down, 90%, that's the estimates, 90% of Americans would be dead within one year. So this destruction that he brings, brings famine, famine brings death and pestilence and disease. And then we have the fifth seal, which is, I call it the martyr seal, because he speaks about the martyrs who are comforted by the Lord, that there are those who pay the price for coming to Christ during the tribulation period. It seems to be decapitation. And then the sixth seal is a series of cataclysmic natural disasters. And then finally we come to the seventh seal. And the seventh seal actually is opening up the seven trumpets. So it kind of like, it blooms, it's kind of a blooming flower, and out of it comes, or maybe it's more like alien, out of it comes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I love that scene. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but the seven trumpets I refer to as a series of ecological disasters. And these are not the acts of a man, but these are literally judgments that God brings upon the earth. And the first trumpet blows and it says, hail and fire mixed with blood come to the earth, is hurled down upon the earth, and a third of the earth is burned up. A third of the earth, I mean, that's, that's just incomprehensible. The second uh, trumpet blows and it says, a third of the seas are turned into blood. Uh, the third trumpet blows and a third of the waters turn bitter and it says, many people died. The fourth trumpet blows and a third of the day was light and a third was night. Uh, there's all sorts of possibilities or speculations how that could happen. But when you think about just the emission of all the, the things that are, are, are burning upon the earth, um, it could simply block out the light of the sun and cause global cooling as opposed to global warming, but that's coming too. Um, the fifth trumpet blows, and it says that locusts that come out of the abyss, um, and they're given power to torture men with their stings for five months. Uh, how literally do I take that? Well, I take it extremely literally until I'm given a reason not to. <laughs> but it talks about this torturous suffering that people will go through. The sixth trumpet blows, and the armies are released to begin the engagement of what we call the Battle of Armageddon. And it says from these armies, a third of the earth's population is killed. And then it comes to the seventh seal. And when the seventh seal is open, there are, are seven signs that are, are covered. When it starts talking about the, the temple in heaven is open, John suddenly sees these great revelations. The temple in heaven is open. And then he secondly says that there's a woman who is clothed with a son. And it's, I think, believe it, it's actually referring to Israel who, bear, who gives birth to a son, which is not Jesus, but it's 144,000. Uh, the third sign is the great red dragon is hurled out of heaven down upon the earth. 
Uh, the fourth is that the, the beast is, rises to power. Uh, the fifth is that the, the false prophet who really promotes the beast rises to power. The sixth is that it talks about the sealing of 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel are raptured into heaven. And then finally, the seventh wonder is angels, I call them evangelistic angels, angels flying through heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel. So you say, well, why is God doing that? Because everybody else who could has been eliminated or raptured. And all that's left are the angels flying through heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel. No, he's not talking about TBN satellite ministry. He's talking, and, and, and a lot of people kind of speculate all sorts of things. What are the seven? I have no idea. Other than, again, I take it literally that if God wants angels to fly through heaven and literally preach the gospel, that's where I go. I mean, that's, that seems uh, reasonable to me. I mean, a lot of times saying, well, I just can't picture that. Well, you have to keep in mind, we're not talking about you. We're talking about God. I don't know how you or I would do that, but I just know how God does it. And God says he's going to send angels through heaven. But that's where we come to chapter 15, and he gets into the final judgment, the seven last plagues judgment. And again, he says of them in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, the seven angels with the seven last plagues last because of them God's wrath is completed. The finality of God's judgment. There are similarities from previous judgments but what difference is, and I think many people overlook, is the intensity of these judgments. In fact, in ver- in first, the first uh, plague is poured out upon the earth, and it says that men's bodies break out with ugly and painful sores. Uh, the second is poured out. It says every living thing in the sea died. Before he talked about a third of the sea dying. Now he's talking about the entire sea, the oceans, become dead. The third plague is poured out, and it says the rivers and springs of water become blood. And he says that, he says, you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Uh, the waters, uh, the fresh water becomes undrinkable. It says it becomes blood. Fourthly, it, it, when the fourth uh, uh, plague is poured out, it says the sun was given power to scorch people with fire, and they were seared by an intense heat. The earth's temperature apparently rising to just unbearable levels. That fifthly, he said, the beast and his kingdom are plunged into darkness and men nod their tongue in agony, obviously from lack of water. That sixth, he said, they gathered the kings together to one place that is called in Hebrew Armageddon, the great battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is, a, is really kind of a, a Greek version of a Hebrew word, Harmageddon, which means the Mount of Megiddo. And uh, the Valley of Megiddo is uh, considered, uh, General Allenby said it was the largest natural battlefield in the world. And it says that that's where the greatest battle of human history will be fought. And then seventh plague, we have simply the angel declaring, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And Mystery Babylon, as she is called, the prostitute of all the nations, is a combination not only of a governmental system, but a religious system. So that I talked about last Sunday how that God created the world so that God is first, and then came the family, and then came government, and those all should be mutually respective of each's role and authority, um, It's particularly religion, uh, government, and the church. But what the Antichrist does is try to meld all of those into one under his authority. 
and he creates this system called Mystery Babylon, uh, the great prostitute. Spiritual prostitution he's speaking of. And he says, he goes on to describe the fall of Babylon and its collapse. And that's where when you get to chapter 19, as we said earlier, it begins by talking about the second coming of Christ. And then in chapter 21, it continues to talk about the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign, and its conclusion. And then finally, uh, in chapter 22, he tells us that there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. In other words, the former things will be gone. The world as we know it is going to disappear when Peter says, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, interesting term to use, but literally the molecular structure that holds everything, the atomic structure that holds everything together, uh, what they call that atomic glue is all going to come apart and everything will disappear in a moment. And God will reconfigure a new universe, a new heaven, a new earth, and with uh, a, a reality which physics are not revealed to us. We don't know how that's going to operate, and yet he gives us this glorious description, description of the final destiny. That is where the story ends, um, and that, but that's also the future for you and me. That's our future. Our future isn't just Jimmy's, Jesus coming back. The future isn't just being the millennial reign of Christ. Our future is a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where we will live and reign with Christ for eternity. The end. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, I just, uh, we praise you and thank you for your plan. We praise and thank you, Lord, that we are part of it. And we look forward day to the day in which it will be fulfilled in the perfection of your purposes. Let us be faithful to you, Lord, all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Why don't you all stand as we sing together?